Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Before we get started today, I just want to wish someone a very, very special birthday. Miss Kyla Kovach, my beautiful niece, she's turning 13 today. So Kyla, Uncle Phil loves you and happy birthday. High up in the Himalayas, in the rugged mountainside, in the shadows of Mount Everest, is the small Nepalese village of Pangbach. At an altitude of 13,074 feet, Pangbach is nestled in the Imja Kol Valley and serves as a base camp for the surrounding peaks and for the campers who trek the Himalayas for their unparalleled views. This small hamlet is also renowned for another reason, a Buddhist monastery shrouded in mystery and intrigue and the peculiar relic that it possesses, a relic that the monks who guard it are more than happy to show you if you're fortunate enough to visit the temple someday. This is the story of that relic and the expedition determined to obtain it, test it, and determine its authenticity. If it sounds like a fictionalized plot conjured up in the backstages of a Hollywood production studio, you're not too far off. In fact, one of the most famous actors of the day and one of the most iconic film performers in history makes a cameo appearance. In this episode of the Missing Chapter podcast, we ask the question, do you believe in cryptids, the legends, myths, and folklore that make up our imagination? We delve into the unknown, the mysterious, the bizarre, as we look to add another chapter to the history textbooks. Hey everybody, welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Today's brew comes from Utica Coffee Roasting Company. It's chocolate amaretto. It's milk chocolate, cherry, almond, and it is delicious. Isn't it, Phil? Yeah, it's really good. So today's episode, Phil, has um, at least my ears buzzing right now because this is a, a topic that I don't think we've ever really covered. It's kind of mysterious. It's kind of legend. It's myth. Uh, it's kind of a, a mixed bag of things, which I'm really excited about. And I think the listeners, after just the intro alone, uh, will probably be pretty excited to hear, too. Yeah, if we go back to the original mission statement, Phil. Cheers, by the way. Cheers. To a great episode. To a great episode. If we go back to the original mission statement of the Missing Chapter podcast, you and I talked about those stories that when you first hear them, you, you have that that immediate, that can't be, that can't be true. I'm going to have to do my own research. Can that really have happened? And this is one of those. There, there's some details to this story that are so strange and bizarre that I honestly was like, I, I'm not even sure if that actually happened. But in reality, it did. That's and a I, great think, story. I think it's it. This is a fun one. I think this is a fun story. It involves uh, lore, legend, which I'm not sure, Phil, if you are a big believer in things like the Yeti and the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot. But you know, it's it 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 provides some entertainment. I think, and it's there are some people out there who are hardcore. Oh yeah, this. yeah. It, what what's great about it though is that you have this pre preconceived notion of certain things when you hear mm -hmm. it, right? Because you hear, you know, of course, the conspiracy side. You hear the, of course, the the, the advocates for some of these stories. Right. But it's just it's entertaining and it and it's it's provocative and it I don't know it creates um it creates conversation at the very least right and and even if it's things that turn out to be legend 
And it's like, oh, I don't think the Yeti actually exists. Yeah, but there, it's part of history. And people have been trying to prove or disprove the Yeti for decades, right? for centuries. So, I mean, in itself, it's part of history. And you have a lot of these shows now uh, on television, whether right. it's a history channel, science channel, yep. all these different um, outlets now are, are really diving into some of these stories. So at the very beginning of, of hearing about this, you're like, ah, oh, there's no way that's true. And then you see some of the videos, you're like, huh, it's a, at least piqued, piqued my interest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here we go. The Himalayan mountains in Nepal and Bhutan are some of the most remote, hostile areas on the planet. And the local people who lived in the mountains, known as the Sherpa, have legends that span hundreds of years of a mysterious hairy man-ape that they've called over the years by a variety of different names, including the Yeti, Meitan uh, Kami, and Shukpa. When British explorers and mountain climbers began trekking into the Himalayas in the late 19th and early 20th century, they heard these legends, and they tried to substantiate them over the years. Some of them began reporting large, apparently bipedal footprints in the snow. Many of these in very inhospitable mountain passes. You have Lawrence Waddell in 1899 making accounts of seeing these footprints, Charles Howard Burry in 1921, and N.A. Tambazi, a member of the Royal Geographic Society, who in 1925 actually said he saw, he witnessed a large, hairy, man-like creature at a distance on a glacier, and later reportedly discovered footprints in that same spot. So in the British press... This is when you first started hearing the mysterious creature being dubbed the abdominable snowman. So there you go. I mean, there, I mean, that's something that you hear about all the time. It's made its way into, you know, Christmas and uh, even Rudolph the, the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? Even the, uh, the animated series or the animated movie, I should say, uh, Smallfoot, exactly. which, of course, our kids love. Yep. I, first of all, kudos for, for pronouncing all those names right. That was impressive. I hope I did. Yeah. And I apologize if I didn't. But so, so what you're doing though is you're creating a story where you know a lot of myth is obviously revolved around this. You hear some of these key words that are kind of pinpointing some of the uh, myth and legend around it. But what we're starting to, at least, at least from my end, mm -hmm. you're starting to compile a list of of piece of evidence, eyewitness testimony. Right. Okay. Right. Because you know, obviously, in the the early 20s, there's no such thing as, as cell phones or mm -hmm. anything like that. Of course, with with video evidence now, you know, we're we're seeing some now um, because we have that. Uh, privilege, I guess you could say, or that luxury. But having that eyewitness testimony, that's pretty close to having video evidence in the you know 21st century. Exactly. And, and Phil, I mean, when you think about it, between land and sea, the areas of the earth that are still unexplored today in 2022, who's to say there's not a species out there? Oh, absolutely. That hasn't been discovered yet. Right. I mean, it's, it's I, I think that actually... The, the chances are pretty high that there are things, creatures that just have not been, you know, seen, photographed, discovered yet. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of areas in our oceans that we've never we've never right. inhabited. We've, we, we know more about our space system than we do uh, our solar system than we do our uh, own oceans. Yep. And, and, you know, I've heard scientists say this before, too. Even some of the things that they think are extinct. Um, they're finding that it's actually not because they said in order to, to deem something extinct, it's, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And some scientists are saying we're finding species, like you said, that we didn't know are still around because exactly. it's hard to be, you know, everywhere in the world at the same time to realize yeah. they're, they're gone. Right. So, yeah. So this is fascinating. Yeah. And one of the most famous instances in Yeti lore, if not the most famous occurrence, happened in 1951 when the British explorer Eric Shipton, who was attempting to scale Mount Everest, photographed a set of tracks in the snow 
using his ice axe to kind of provide scale. He put it down next to the footprints. And he and his Sherpa guides attributed these to the Yeti. Sir Edmund Hillary, the first European to ascend Mount Everest, also took an interest in the legend and arranged for the examination of a number of artifacts held in Buddhist monasteries claiming to be from a Yeti, hmm. including a preserved scalp and an alleged skin, which were obtained by an expedition sent to the area by the Daily Mail newspaper out of Britain. Now, after further examination and testing, this skin in this instance turned out to be a Tibetan bear. And the scalp was from a species of antelope native to the area. Okay. Okay. But Hillary and the scientific community kind of dismissed the Yeti as a mere legend after this. Said, listen, we we did some research. Um, this is there there are so many different animals up there that this could be. Um, and in this case, it was a bear and an antelope. They kind of dismissed it and said, Okay, it's a good story, but there's no truth to it. Right. So the monastery lo- located in Pangbach, however, the one that I introduced to you guys in the, in the beginning of this has held firm to their legend and has held firm to their Yeti artifacts. According to Pangbach legend and to members of the Pangbach monastery, a monk once walked into a cave to meditate. This is the origin of their their artifacts and their story. Here, the monk encountered a Yeti. The Yeti was not menacing. It wasn't threatening. The monk was able to pray, meditate before going on his way. Many years later, the monk returned to the same cave to find the Yeti was still there, but had passed away. He collected the hand, he collected the scalp, returned back to the monastery where the Yeti uh, scalp and hand remained on display in a very prominent Buddhist temple. Throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, the legend of the Yeti artifacts grew and became more renowned. Climbers on their way to the summit of Mount Everest would often make a point to stop and see the Yeti hand and scalp on their way up the mountain. So it was part of the trip almost. Right, yeah. You had to make this pass. It was convenient. And why not stop and see this very legendary, very historic artifact that these Buddhists had put on display? So so the Buddhist monk that that discovered the dead corpse of the of the Yeti. Yeah. Decided to take the hand. Right. And so, the scalp. So he must have had something on him which would allow him to remove the hand right. and right. the scalp. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is why the hand and the scalp? Um, that's a great question. I'm not sure if that's what, based on what was remaining of this particular Yeti okay. after having passed away and decayed was, was left. Um, a lot of what you hear about the artifacts that people do collect tend to revolve around the hands and the scalp. Yeah. So I'm not sure if there's like a spiritual element to that. Um, but they tend to be the most commonly collected quote unquote examples of Yetis. And maybe, you know, what you could carry, I guess. Right. You know, when right. You're Absolutely. Traveling Mount Everest, yeah. So with this story, we, we turn our attention to a gentleman by the name of Tom Slick. And you and I appreciate a good pun, Phil. Tom yeah. Slick is actually an oil businessman. And oh, of course. He's, he's extremely wealthy, and a lot of his money he uses on adventures. So Tom Slick, an oil businessman and adventurer, first hears the accounts of a possible existence of a Yeti hand held as a ritual artifact at the monastery at Pangbosh during one of his... Uh, uh, of abdominal snowman treks in 1957. The slick expeditions were the first to bring photographs of the hand back to the West. Slick himself had been involved in and had funded numerous trips throughout his life trying to legitimize legends, things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Northwest Pacific Bigfoot in areas in Washington and around Seattle. Visitors to the Pangbosh Monastery in Nepal had been displaying 
uh, a bit of skin and shriveled, dried out hand said to be the scalp and hand of a Yeti found in the cave. And when Peter Byrne, an Irish American crypt cryptozoologist, want to make sure I get that right, who'd been investigating the Bigfoot phenom before joining Slick's Yeti expedition, heard about them. He also traveled to the monastery in 1958. So now you have two guys. You have Byrne, the cryptozoologist, and you have Slick, the oil man, who has tons of money to kind of fund expeditions like this, focusing their attention on this one example of a supposed Yeti. So it's kind of a perfect storm of people right. working together. Okay. And they decide that they're going to join forces. Okay. Um, so Byrne, the cryptozoologist, travels to the monastery in 1958 and asks to have their samples scientifically examined. Okay. Okay. In his words, Byrne's first impression of the Yeti ham. Byrne recounts that it looked like a large primate hand of some kind. The monastery was naturally reluctant to have any sort of testing done, primarily because they depended um, on the offerings that pilgrims were making to see the holy relics as part of the income of the village. Mm, and they yeah. didn't want to ruin that. So printed accounts of what happened next are kind of contradictory. In some versions of the story, Byrne arranges an opportunity to examine the Yeti hand alone and secretively switches out one of the finger bones, replacing it with an ordinary human bone that he'd obtained from a London primatologist. Wow. So that's that's one account. But in all the research, Phil, it doesn't seem like the like the the most um believable account, okay. rather. Okay. The idea that they're going to allow a, a stranger yeah. who has ulterior motives alone with a hand that's extremely important to them, it doesn't seem very logical. That was my question. Right. Yeah. So in this scenario, Byrne stole the finger joint, replaced it with another so that the heist would go unrecognized. But in other versions, and these ones seem to be a little bit more like legitimized through Byrne's own account, interviews he did later on, in both journal entries and in letters, this is what he says happened. Byrne was allowed by the monks to actually remove one of the finger bones for examination. And after making a sizable donation to the monastery through Slick's funding, mm -hmm. uh, he's allowed to take it. So he says, listen, I just want a piece of this. And, and I'm going to give you a very large amount of money, reportedly 10,000 rupees, which was about 100 British pounds at the time. Wow. And the monks, who again are focused on hey, this is a real relic, but it's also important to the the money coming into our village. Can't turn that down. Right. So you're killing so, two birds with one stone. Right. So it's, listen, it's not, I'm not stealing this. You're agreeing to it. I'm going to take a portion of it. You can keep the remainder of the hand. You have the money and I'll be able to go back and, and do an experiment on this and determine whether or not it's actually a Yeti hand or if we know where else, you know, its origins were from. I'm intrigued. Yeah. So he hands over the money in scenario number two is allowed to take a finger bone. He replaces it with a human bone at the monk's request to maintain its appearance to people who are still coming into the village. Okay. Okay. Yep. In this case, both people are happy. But there was never any deception in scenario two. Now, regardless of how he obtained the Yeti finger, and most people do agree that the second account was more credible, mm -hmm. Byrne now faced another dilemma, another problem. The problem of how to get it back to London for examination. He has a Yeti finger in his possession. How do I get it back to London and give it to my connections there who can test whether or not this is from an actual Yeti? Now, believe it or not, 
Nepalese history is so based around Yeti lore that get this, Phil, the Nepalese government had actually passed laws forbidding any suspected Yetis from being killed or removing any Yeti relics from the country. It was an actual law. So Byrne contacted Slick and said, listen, I need your help. I did my part. I found the Yeti hand. I was able to negotiate with the monks. I'm in now possession of a finger. I can't get out of the country. If I get found with this, I'm in big trouble. So as it turned out, Slick's connections extended far beyond the oil industry. In fact, his connections were quite extensive. It turns out Slick had done some past work for the CIA and Hollywood film director Howard Hughes. What? As a result, Slick had an impressive Rolodex of actors and actresses that he was able to contact. And as it turned out, and this is where the story, Phil, if you're entertained at this point, I'm going to take it up now. As it turned out, one of the most famous actors at the time proved to be the solution for Peter Burns's dilemma and his role in helping smuggle the Yeti finger out of Nepal. All right. So let me get this straight. You got an oil tycoon. Oil tycoon. Slick. Slick. Sounds like something straight out of a Hollywood. Come on. I, mean, I know it. I know it. You can't make this stuff up. You have uh, a Buddhist monastery. Mm-hmm. You have the largest mountain in the world. And now you're telling me there's yetis and somehow a celebrity is involved. Right. And you have the mercenary of sorts who's, you know, managed to obtain a finger, a, a piece of this yeti, and now has to get it back to England. It does. It sounds almost like a like an Indiana Jones plot. That's Seriously? kind of like yeah. for somebody who grew up during the time period that we did, Phil. I thought that was kind of like this this totally seems like a Hollywood script yeah. that you're reading for. So it, it makes sense that this cliffhanger would have a, a a very, very I mean, this is not an obscure actor here. Okay. Okay. And, and I well hold on. Right. I gotta I gotta mention to the listeners. Right yeah. Now, you have a look on your face like you have some sort of secret. Yeah, that, that you're really excited this, to share. I did this intentionally. I wanted to. I wanted to keep this person's name, you know, for later on in this episode because it. <laughs> yeah. I, and there are some other twists and turns of this that are just. It just. It adds to the overall, just quality of this story. I think it's really. It's a fun story. Like I said at the beginning. So we're in the fifties. Yes. So it's it's an actor, mm-hmm. not an actress. It's an actor in the fifties. Yes. Okay. I have okay. a couple of ideas, but take it away. Let's see. All right. So as it was, as it would turn out. One of Tom Slick's friends from Hollywood, close friend actually, was none other than famed actor Jimmy Stewart, the star of movies like It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the Alfred Hitchcock thriller uh, Rear Window. It turns out Jimmy Stewart was close to Slick and, and this is, this is crazy too, happened to be at that moment on vacation with his wife Gloria in all places, Calcutta, India. Come on. Which I think is kind of strange. It's very yeah, odd, yeah. Why you'd go on vacation to Calcutta, India? But there he was. So the timing was perfect. So a seemingly bizarre place to be on vacation, but conveniently a short way from Nepal. So Slick and Byrne, who'd smuggled the finger bone uh, in his backpack, met with the Stuarts at the Grand Hotel in Calcutta. 
where they explained the situation to the actor. Stuart was intrigued, and he and his wife agreed to smuggle the bones back to London for Byrne. Okay? And, and I'll be honest, there's some issues as to how Byrne even got to Calcutta. There wasn't a lot of information as to how they, how they were able to hook up. Because in order to do that, I mean, he's, if you're talking about crossing borders from Nepal to India, there's an issue there. Um, but now it's a matter of making that much farther trip mm-hmm. from Calcutta, India, you know, in the 50s to London. And that's where Jimmy Stewart and his wife are going to help. And they come up with a plan that I think is very simple, but very ingenious. And it's playing off of the time and what is acceptable and, and, and unacceptable. So the Stewarts and Byrne devised a plan. They would avoid customs in both airports. Uh, and they would avoid anyone discovering the illicit artifact by packing the bone fragments in Gloria Stewart's lingerie case. Oh so someplace officers at both airports would most assuredly never dare to look. Right. And the plan worked. Customs opened the bag reportedly in Heathrow, revealing Gloria's undergarments and immediately resealed her luggage and apologized. The Stuarts uh, had made it to London, where the pilfered artifacts were then examined by another one of Slick's friends, London primatologist Osman Hill. Hill at first deciphered that the Pangbach Yeti finger was actually from a human, but later changed his mind and classified it as human-like, possibly hmm. early hominid. Hmm. And there was a lot of controversy around this because people who, who knew Osman Hill said, listen, th- this guy's very known throughout his field. He was right the first time, but there was almost like a guilt that he had discredited the Yeti hand. So he, he went, kind of went back and said, oh, no, it's, it's, it's human-like. There's, th- there's still the possibility. And people kind of looked at him as like, come on, Osman. Yeah. Don't feed into this. Tell us what the science shows us. Okay. okay? Um, but oddly after this, the it would appear that the bone, which was so important, so sought after, was essentially forgotten about for a while. When Osmond Hill died in 1976, the Yeti finger was rediscovered amongst all of his belongings. And it made its way to the museum collection of the Royal College of Surgeons, where it was found in the archives in 2011. Oh, wow. Now, Peter Byrne himself, who was 85 years old at this point, was astonished to learn that the finger even existed. He had lost track of it, too. And when he was taken by investigators to see it in London, he helped confirm London police that it was indeed the bone he had removed from the Yeti hand at Pangbosh a half a century before. That's unreal. Arrangements were made to have the finger DNA tested. All right. Obviously, science had advanced. Let's do some DNA testing. And the results were conclusive. And I'm sorry for everyone at home. This would have been an even better ending to this. But the bone was indeed that of an ordinary human. Wow. Right. But that doesn't stop the strange events. Okay. We very easily could stop our story. There. I thought that through your story. Yeah, you, you, you know, had me. Jimmy Stewart. I was content. It's human. Darn. Okay. But there are another strange set of events. The Yeti hand itself, the entire relic, the one that was on display at the Pangbosh Monastery, was stolen. The hand and the scalp in 1995, completely taken from the monastery and the monks. When the monks heard that the original finger had been rediscovered in London after Osman Hill's death, all right, they asked it for it to be returned to the shrine, and it never yeah. had been. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because London said, we're going to hang on to this. We're going to continue to do some tests. 
But in the meantime, in 2010, New Zealand mountain climber Malk, Mike, excuse me, Mike Elsop, who had visited the Pangbosh Monastery, said, you know what? Now that the Yeti hand was stolen, it's only right that that finger makes its way back to the monastery. Mm -hmm. It's theirs. Mm -hmm. And even though they were compensated for it financially, listen, it's time has passed. It's important to them. Give it back to them, at least until the Yeti hand is, is rediscovered. Right. Okay. So now you have this New Zealand mountain climber, Mike Alsop, uh, arranging for a complete replica of the Yeti hand to also be made. Return the finger. And until we find the hand, let's have a, a, a complete replica made. And he contacts the movie FX company, Weta Workshop. And they've made, Phil, I was looking this up, costumes for Lord of the Rings. They've done oh my extensive work throughout some of the biggest budgeted, you know, motion pictures of our time. So they're making, they're making a replica so people can come in and still, and still see and it. Still see it. It's going to be a replica. They also want the, the bone fragment to come back. And they also want to find the original hand mm -hmm. that somebody has stolen. So Mike Elsop personally delivers the replica hand that Weta Workshop uh, made to the monastery. And he's also formed a nonprofit group called Return the Hand to search for the original stolen Yeti hand so it can be returned to the Pangbosh Monastery. So you have a Yeti hand out there somewhere. You have the finger that was proven to be ordinary human that's making its way still back to the Pangosh Monastery. And you have a great story. You have a great story that kind of just, I, you know, the, the more I looked into this, the more I researched, it just delves into the human desire to kind of believe these outrageous stories. Yeah. yeah. Like we, and to get answers and to get answers. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We're, a, we're a people who like answers. We like finality. Like, is it true? Is it not? Right. But we also like believing the unimaginable. Like those, there's something about Absolutely. those legends that yeah. taps into something that we enjoy. Like you said at the beginning, it's entertaining. It's fun. It's that, it's that campfire mm -hmm. kind of setting. Now, when they, when they created the replica, mm -hmm. are they telling people that it's a replica or are they, they are, they are because it's pretty well known now. And, and I mean, it's received a lot of attention that this original hand was stolen. Because I got thinking. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know why I immediately thought of this. Probably because we just think in movie quotes. Mm -hmm. I got thinking about the movie Sandlot. Yeah. When they used the Babe Ruth ball. And he had to he had to write on, you know, a, a random baseball Babe Ruth and put it into his father's, <laughs> his stepfather's. You know what I mean? No. His I trophy case. And, and just to buy it some time, you know. Right. So so I'm, I'm, I was just curious whether or not they're doing that to buy some time until they get the hand back. And I think the story of the hand, the story that I just told, I think it's, as, it's, it's almost gotten bigger than the hand itself. So people now come to the monastery for the entire story that has kind of engulfed yeah. the hand. So even though it's not the original hand, which the monastery would love to have back, the replica at least serves the purpose of let's tell the story of the hand. And, you know, I, I think the fact that it was, you know, recreated and, and the replica was made by a, a very prominent um, movie company, it kind of adds to it. It's a, it's a later chapter. And then the fact that Jimmy Stewart? Jimmy Stewart. And of course, obviously now the, the title makes so much sense. Right. It's a wonderful it's heist. It's a wonderful heist. I was curious about that as well. Yeah. So, Phil, I want to I point something else out too. When you were talking about Tom Slick... One of the things I like doing while you're, you know, introducing us to some of these people, I like Googling 
their names and trying to figure out some background information um, to try to point me in a direction where we'd like to go during the podcast. Now, while you were talking about him, I, I started to Google Tom Slick, and one of the suggestions for his name was actually plane crash. Is there any authenticity to that? Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up. In, in some of my research, this is kind of interesting. If we go back to kind of the one of the main protagonists in this story, Tom Slick actually had an untimely demise. You know, he died at 46, uh, like you said, in a plane crash. Yeah. Apparently, he was coming back, uh, returning to Salt Lake City. They were over Montana, and his uh, dual engine plane was struck by lightning. So they had some poor weather. And, yeah, he was only 46 years old. He and um, the pilot passed away. I pulled up the article, and it says, of course, it talks about the abominable snowman um, in the Himalaya Mountains of Nepal. But I'm, I'm seeing that this maybe I'm maybe I'm just confused here. He also had a second plane crash earlier that he survived in. Now it says a few years ago, while he was exploring for diamonds, his plane crashed in the jungles of Brazil. He walked out to safety. Yeah. I mean, somebody of this magnitude, I think, you know, somewhere I saw like 20 million, 20 million dollars was his estimated worth when he passed away. And again, we're talking about the 1950s. Right. Um, but that's a lot of money, regardless of what year it is. So I, he, he did not use chartered flights. I mean, these were single engine planes, dual engine planes that he owned. Yeah. So there was some questionable maintenance, repairs, things like that. But yeah, to, to survive a plane crash and then ultimately die in a plane crash. This this entire episode, yeah. I got to tell you, this entire episode is, is is just surrounded in obscurity. Yeah. From, from, you know, Jimmy Stewart to the plane crash to a finger being traveled. I, it was incredible. So I appreciate you sharing this with Thank us. Thank you. If awesome. anybody is looking for a script for a movie, I think we've provided it for you today. And, and I don't think uh, we could ever look at it's a wonderful life the same way again. I don't think so either, Phil. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.